step into my library, won't you, and have a seat by the fire. This is Jennifer Passarello from Circa19XX.com and the Circa Sunday Night Podcast. But tonight, we're not in either of those places. We're in the Vintage Century Reading Room, and I have a book to share with you that have been lost in the mists of time. Let's have a little read, shall we? How could I be lonely with a friend like you? For you're driving all my cares away. Well, hello there. Now, I know what you're thinking. Jennifer, what in the world? (laughs) I know, I said just two weeks ago, bye, see you in February. You know, I'd wrapped up season one of Circus Sunday Night, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to take a couple of months off and and do some other things and think about the podcast a little bit. And, you know, I'll see you in a couple of months. And here I am again already. What happened? Well, I got this crazy notion. And you know how you get a crazy notion and you just can't let go of it? This tends to happen to me quite a bit. And what I've discovered is that when this happens, it's just better to act on it. Just pluck it out of your head, do something with it, and then maybe you can move on. And so I guess that's what this is. This is the purging of an idea that had seized my little brain. (laughs) All right, so here is my story. Several years ago, I went to this little bookshop. It was a used bookshop. And I'm wandering around, not looking for anything in particular, just sort of scanning the titles. And in the back corner of this shop, I found this little book, very small, pretty dirty and dusty. And, you know, honestly, it looked like it hadn't been opened for, I don't know, 50 years, maybe a long time. But this little book had a title that was a real attention grabber. It was called Take a Look at Yourself, and it was by a man named John Homer Miller. Now, I'd never heard of the book. I've never heard of the author, okay? But I was just so intrigued by that title. So I bought it, and I think I paid, I don't know, maybe a couple of dollars for it. But my intention was not actually to read it. I was going to use it as a prop in some photos for my website because it has this really cool vintage font on the spine. And, you know, like I said, it's in, it was in good shape. It was dirty, but it was in good shape. So I thought, oh, yeah, this will be great in photos. So I cleaned it up. I put it in a drawer until I needed it. And then apparently I didn't need it for a long time because it sat there in that drawer for years, and I totally forgot about it. Well, I just recently found that book again, and I started reading through it. I've got to tell you. It was soothing to my soul. You know, we're headed into a new year, and let's face it, there's a lot of disheartening stuff going on around the world today. You know, I can sit around and feel bad about that, or I can try to fix things, but the problems are so big that I don't even know where I would begin to fix them, and I decided I just can't really fix them. But what I can do is I can work on myself. So one of the things that I decided I wanted to try to do for this new year is work on my friendship with God. You know, he's been a much better friend to me than I've been to him. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, you know, I thought, I need to change that. I need to rectify that. So I've been following a daily Bible reading program. I've been getting to know his word a little better. And, you know, just spending more quiet time with him in general. So that's the first thing that I wanted to do. The other thing that I'm trying to do right now is change my thinking. Change my thinking really about everything. I tend to be a pessimist. I tend to go into the death spiral with very little provocation. (laughs) You know, I get one little thing and it discourages me completely. So I've decided I need to change my thinking. I need to change my thinking about other people, about my circumstances, really about everything. Now, I'm not a big goal setter, but I feel like these two goals, working on my friendship with God and changing my thinking and, you know, guarding my thoughts, are things that I can do and that I really need to do. So this little book, Take a Look at Yourself, Well, it's kind of a book that, well, it probably wouldn't be written today. It's in a style that's very direct, as you can tell from the title. (laughs) Take a look at yourself. But it's also unapologetic. But it's also hope-filled and inspiring. And, you know, I just have loved it. I've only read a little bit of this book, but so far I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I need right now. So I guess you could say that this little project really started out to be all about me. But then the thought occurred to me, and this is the thing that I couldn't let go of, that, you know, maybe my listeners might get something out of this too. So Take a Look at at Yourself has been out of print for a very long time. You can't get this book anywhere. There's almost no information about it out on the Internet, at least none that I could find. And so I got to thinking, well... If I don't show, share this with you, you're likely never going to find it. So here we are. If you want to make some radical changes in your life too, why not join me here in the reading room as we discover the secrets of this little book together? Now this is a short little book and the chapters are short. So what I thought I would do is break this down and cover one chapter at a time. So I'll read a chapter share with you some of my thoughts about it, and then two weeks later, we'll regroup, we'll read through the next chapter, and so on. Now, that two-week time frame between chapters is really kind of ideal. I think it'll give us a chance to apply some of the lessons that Miller has to share with us. Okay, so about this book. I have very little information to tell you about it. Apparently, it was written in 1943, And the book that I have was a gift, presumably from one friend or perhaps a sister to another. There's a handwritten inscription on the inside flap, and it reads, To Betty from Rosie, May 1944. Also on the inside flap is some text regarding the publication of books during wartime. This is relevant, of course, because this book was produced while World War II was still going on. Here's what it says. The wartime shortage of pulp, manpower, and transportation has produced a severe shortage of paper. In compliance with the order of the War Production Board, wartime books are printed on lighter weight paper. This reduces thickness and weight. New books have more words to the page and smaller margins. This reduces the number of pages without reducing reading content. Thinner books save paper, critical copper, and other metals. They help also to avoid wartime increases in book prices. 
Wartime books appear to be smaller, but their content has not been cut. They are complete. The only change is in appearance. You know, the World War II era felt, I'm very sure, <laughs> as strange to the people of that time as our current time feels to us. Dark forces were on the march. Young men were returning home, if they were lucky, to start life anew. But what life? I mean, how do you come back from that and begin again? It's the question asked and answered probably a million times throughout our history. You know, we, we have such a complicated history. All of us do. But I think our little book was designed as a guide to help the lost find themselves again. And we kind of need that too, don't we? So this week, let's read through the foreword and then chapter one. start with the foreword of this book. And remember, the title of our book is Take a Look at Yourself, and it's by John Homer Miller. The foreword also, let me make sure. Uh, yes, the foreword was also written by him. Thackeray once said that the world is a looking glass and gives back to every man the reflection of his own face. So it is hoped that the chapters of this book may serve as mirrors in which you may catch glimpses of yourself as you really are to the end that you may be inspired to be what you are capable of becoming. Self-knowledge must precede self-improvement. Human nature responds instinctively to the suggestion, take a look at yourself. Curiosity about yourself is a universal trait. You're more interested in yourself than you are in anything else in the world. However, you may have another characteristic equally strange an unwillingness to see yourself as you actually are. The last person you may want to meet is yourself. Oftentimes, your chief vocation may be trying to run away from yourself. You may be afraid of your own company. You cannot bear to be alone with yourself. Arthur Garfield Hayes, in his autobiography, The City Lawyer, expressed a typical characteristic of modern man when he wrote that he was highly allergic to being alone. Yet every achievement in your character and personality is conditioned by your willingness to check up on yourself. This book is not intended to be a consecutive study on an academic subject. The chapters are related only in the sense that they all deal with the individual in his multiple relationships with himself, other people, his world, and his God. They are not intended to be technical treatises making claim to originality or requiring special research, but simple, practical discussions of everyday life situations for everyday people. Each chapter is more suggestive than exhaustive. Much is left to the imagination of the reader. What has been left out may be quite as important as what has been put in. The content is more illustrative than explanatory. The illustrations sometimes enable the reader to see great truths, which an academic discussion is powerless to explain. J.H.M. Chapter 1. Your Life is What You Make It Three factors combine to determine your life, heredity, environment, and yourself, and the greatest of these is yourself. 
If you find nothing in life, invariably it is your own fault. Boredom and futility are the result not of where you are or how much or how little you have, but of what you are. There's nothing hopeless about life at any time in any place. There are only people who have grown hopeless about their own lives. Life, even under circumstances over which you have no control, is largely what you make it. The elderly Englishwoman revealed a spirit greater than anything that could happen to her when she wrote after her home had been bombed, I would not choose to be living in any other place or at any other time. To such a person under any circumstances, it can be said, life is what you make it. What life means to you is determined not so much by what life brings to you as by the attitude you bring to life. Not so much by what happens to you as by the attitude you take toward what happens. Circumstances and situations do color life, but you have been given the power to choose what the color shall be. The seasick passenger in the middle of the Atlantic was doing exactly that when the steward said to him, Don't be downhearted. Nobody's ever died of seasickness. The stricken passenger moaned, Oh, don't say that. It's only the hope of dying that's kept me alive so far. Life is what you make it, because living is at least 90% attitude. Two people in the same situation will see entirely different things. What is opposition for one is opportunity for another. Two men look through the self-same bars. One sees mud, the other stars. What life means to you is determined by the attitude you take toward it. In turn, what life comes to mean to you determines what you make of your life. The path you actually take in this world is determined ultimately by what you conceive to be the nature of things. In consequence, your living is determined more by your attitude than by your ancestry. Your life is more mental than environmental. It's more than heredity or environment. It is you yourself who determine what your life shall be. As you think in your heart, so you are and so you will become. You live in the direction of your thoughts. Shakespeare's Macbeth saw life as a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. In consequence, Macbeth became what he thought. He believed in nothing, and as a result lived and died for nothing. Life means what you choose to make it mean. Many people, like Macbeth, make it mean exactly zero, full of noise but amounting to nothing, or, like Theodore Dreiser, make it mean a complete illusion or mirage in a wholly inexplicable world. He said this, I catch no meaning from all I have seen, and pass quite as I came, confused and dismayed. At the other extreme, we hear the Apostle Paul declare, For me to live is Christ. Paul would say, Life is what Christ means to me. Christ is what I want to make of my life. The Apostle Paul is Christianity's chief example of the truth that you have the power to determine what your life shall be. One day he was making of his life one thing as Saul of Tarsus. The next day he was making of his life something else altogether. Where once his great ambition had been to persecute and kill Christians, 
Now his all-possessing desire was to become Christ-like. Even so, Christian faith stands before every man, saying, Life can be what you choose to make it. You need not stay the way you are. You can change from what you are now to what you should become. You can make your life vastly more meaningful than it is now. If you don't find life worth living, it's within your power and up to you to make it worth living. One of the greatest souls of this age tells of this conversation with a thoroughly modern young woman who said to him, I don't believe in a single thing. I don't believe in God, in myself, in life, in other people. There's no purpose to life. There's no meaning. Well, I replied, it doesn't seem to have done you much good, does it? At 25, you're bored, cynical, critical, out of joint with yourself and with life in general. At 25, you should just be beginning to live gloriously. But now you've run through your resources and don't know what to do. At 50, life for me is getting better and better. Every year is finer than the last. And the adventure of living is glorious. I don't know what it is to have a bored or cynical hour. Now, my way seems to be working. And yours doesn't. Isn't that true? She admitted that it was. Then try Christ, and I give you my word of honor that it will work to the degree that you work it. She said she would and went away. A few hours later, the telephone rang and someone came, saying that there was a lady at the phone who said she had just two words to say and that those two words would be understood. The two words, it works. A year later, she wrote to me and said, it still works. It does work with everybody who really tries it. Underscore this basic truth. If life is worthwhile, it's not because you found it that way, but because you have made it so. Now, Christian faith is unequaled in its power and resources to help you make life worth living. It's here that irreligion shows itself up for what it really is. It has no power to help you see meaning in life to get the most out of yourself, or to make life worth living. Listen to Clarence Darrow, who's universally remembered as an atheist, when he says, If I were a young man with life ahead of me, I think I'd chuck it all, the way things are now. The odds are too great against you, and anyway, the world is all wrong nowadays. I certainly have no encouragement for the young bloods that are just starting out. The sooner they jump out of windows the sooner they'll find peace. In contrast, Christian faith stands before each new generation and says, under any circumstances, in any situation, you can be more than a conqueror. Your life can be what you want to make of it. One way to make the most of your life is to discipline yourself daily to live up to the highest and best that you know. Life, which is the greatest of all arts, is like any other art. Beethoven spent unbelievable hours of labor upon a few bars of melody. To an admiring woman who asked how she might learn his perfect artistry, Holman Hunt replied, All you need to do is practice eight hours a day for forty years. Paul Lawrence Dunbar, the poet, 
literally squandered the first 24 years of his life in bitterness. What he thought about life at the age of 24 found expression in this bit of verse. A crust of bread and a corner to sleep in. A minute to smile and an hour to weep in. A pint of joy to a peck of trouble. And never a laugh, but the moans come double. And that is life. Dunbar died of tuberculosis at the early age of 34, but not before something happened which changed his whole attitude toward life. Then, instead of living down to the lowest, he began living up to the highest he knew and believed. He determined that never again would he hold ill will toward anyone who had wronged him. Listen now to his revised version of life. A crust and a corner that love makes precious with the smile to warm and the tears to refresh us. And joy seems sweeter when cares come after. And a moan is the finest foil for laughter. That is life. Life is what you make it. It's largely an attitude. Your life can be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the changing of your attitude. Here is a second suggestion which will help you to make more of your life. Discipline yourself to live by some design, under some vision, for some purpose greater than yourself. If you have an idea of what you intend to do with your life, you have an immense advantage over your friends who have not. You have something to work for. You have a vision that gives your life direction and a purpose that gives meaning to your days. One of our widely read modern writers has said, We just slide along through life. But if people would only give, just once in their lives, the same amount of serious reflection to what they want to get out of life that they do when they're considering what they want to get out of two weeks' vacation, they would be startled at the aimless procession of their busy days and the trivial false standards they subscribe to with their blood and sweat. To make the most of your life, you need to live by some design, under some vision, for some purpose greater than yourself. Christian faith is incomparable in its power to help you make more of your life than you are now because it chooses for you and it brings you under the influence and inspiration of persons and a person far greater and better than yourself. You will confess that you've been made better through the companionship of people better than yourself. Well, Christian faith helps you to make the most of your life by choosing for you the kind of people you can look up to. Moreover, it's the companionship with the noblest souls on earth that ultimately leads you into fellowship with the highest in heaven. Modern psychology affirms that vital religious faith cannot be equaled in the art of helping you to make the most of yourself in its power to help you daily live up to the highest you know by a design, under a vision, for a purpose greater than yourself, and in fellowship not only with the noblest souls on earth, but with the highest in heaven. The Church holds before you this fact, confirmed in the lives of Paul, Augustine, Francis of Assisi, and millions who, humble and nameless, the straight, hard pathway plod. You can be more than a conqueror. No circumstance or situation need stand between you and your highest self. Life can be 
what you choose to make it. Okay, so I think we have a couple of assignments to do now, don't we? Remember that in this first chapter, Miller gave us two disciplines that we can put into practice to start changing our lives. So maybe that's what we should do over the next two weeks is try these out in our own lives. All right, what were those disciplines? Remember, there were two of them. The first one was discipline yourself daily to live up to the highest and best that you know. Now, what does that mean from a a practical standpoint? Well, I can tell you what that means to me. I think it's really important that we monitor what we put inside of our brains. You know, there's so much ugly stuff out there on the internet, in social media. There's just a nastiness, a meanness out there that do not lift us up, that bring us down. There's just a whole lot of bad stuff out there. And I think it's a mistake if we assume that, oh, yeah, we can look at that stuff, we can watch it, we can listen to it, and not think that that's going to have an effect on us. That is seeping into our brain. It's affecting our thoughts. And then those thoughts then affect our outlook. It affects our decisions. And it's probably a cumulative effect, right? So the more nasty things that we see, the more ugliness, the more meanness that we see, the more we start internalizing that. I'm not a psychologist, but I think that has to be true, right? I mean, we don't just see those things and then poof, they're gone. We can't unsee them. We can't unhear them. So I think that's one of the things I'm going to do um, in the next two weeks is I'm going to try to really guard what I put inside my brain. I want to listen to beautiful music. I want to see beautiful pictures or, you know, go outside and look for the beauty in this very brown, uh, you know, world. There's no leaves. There's really not a whole lot of color. It's all brown and gray right now. But there's still beauty out there to behold. And so I'm going to look for that. That's one of the things I'm going to try to do for discipline number one. Okay, discipline number two. Discipline yourself to live by some design, under some vision, for some purpose, greater than yourself. That's what I'm going to have to think about. What is the purpose greater than myself? You know, I'm a person as an introvert that tends to live most of my life internally. I don't think that's really what we're supposed to do. I think Miller's right here. I think we're supposed to look outward and find something beyond ourselves. Don't think about ourselves quite so much, but think about the needs of other people. And I I guess the best place to start is with the people that we see every day, our family, our friends. You know, again, we can't change the world, but I guess what we can do is we can look around our little neighborhood, our little circle of people, and maybe try to look at them and their needs first and not look so much internally. Okay, well, let's give it a try. I don't know. This is probably not going to be easy. Remember, it takes a lot of practice. And so I think that's what we're going to have to do in the next couple of weeks. Well, good luck to you. Come back here in a couple of weeks, and we'll dive into Chapter 2, and we'll probably have a couple more assignments at that point.
In the meantime, have a great couple of weeks and I'll see you soon.